if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you want to cheat, you can turn to Matthew and just hang a left from there and you'll find it. We're going to read one verse this morning. This is Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Now you can be seated. So this is the last sermon in our minors sermon series on the minor prophets, which unfortunately means it's the last Sunday that you get trading cards and baseball snacks and things like that. Um, But I just want to ask, I don't know how this is going to land, but each week we've given a trading card for the prophet we were talking about, and we only covered nine and they're 12. So we gave a couple extra a few times Prior to, uh, well, I'll just ask, does anybody have all 12 trading cards? Oh, oh, you've got it. Okay, I don't know what I'm going to give you, but I'm going to figure something out for you two. That's awesome. So you might remember the parable of the worker and the wages, and there's a guy, and he hires a bunch of people in the morning, and then... A few hours later, he hires some more people, and then at the end of the day, he hires some more people, and so the people in the morning worked all day, the people in the, later in the day only worked for an hour, but he pays them all the same, and the people who were there in the morning are like, what's up with that, man? You're paying them the same, but that is the upside-down kingdom of God, and in that same spirit, even if you haven't gotten the cards today... We are going to display the gospel by having all 12 cards on a table. Even if you didn't earn it, all 12 cards are out there. Our, our gift to you. So this is your last chance to get those trading cards. Um, <clears throat> okay, so way back in June when the Miners series started, I shared with you an infographic based on my relationship to the Minor Prophets, and we have that again. So... Uh, this is how I have generally felt toward the minor prophets. Maybe you can relate. I'm scared of them. I'm scared of them because I don't understand them. And since I don't understand them, I don't read them. And since I don't read them, I remain scared of them. So uh, I have enjoyed personally digging into the minor prophets and learning more. And I've had um, a few goals with this series. I've had three goals, actually, to make you all a little bit less scared of the minor prophets and maybe even interested in them. I have wanted us to show what they have to do with Jesus, and I've wanted us to show what they have to do with you. And we obviously couldn't cover everything in them, but I hope at some point you will return to the minor prophets and be less afraid of them. And uh, two quick tips if you're going to read the minor prophets or really any of the prophets, I would say grab a study Bible. doesn't really matter which one, but grab a study Bible because the notes will help you understand some of the things that are hard to understand. And if you're the type who does a reading plan, I would highly encourage you to do a chronological reading plan. Uh, They actually make chronological Bibles, but I'm not asking you to buy two Bibles because that would be nuts, right? But you can just download a chronological 
reading plan online, and it will help because as you're going through the history books of Kings and Chronicles, it'll kind of put the prophets in their place instead of like, you've read all that, and then you get to the prophets, and you don't remember what it's talking about. That's my pro tip for you. Okay, so this morning, I want to give you the overview of Malachi, and I want to show you that it has something to do with you, and I also want to show that it connects uh, really all of the Old Testament to Jesus. So one last time, we're going to pull up our Minor Prophets timeline that you should be used to seeing by now, and I still have no idea if you can actually read it from your seats, Uh, but there it is. And so the thing that should be obvious for you to notice is that Malachi is the very last prophet on the timeline. And it's also the very last book in your Old Testament. And that doesn't actually mean that it was necessarily the last one written, but it comes at the end of the Old Testament in English Bibles. And we're going to come back to why that is. But here's what you need to know. Malachi was a prophet in Israel about 100 years after they had returned from exile. <clears throat> so Judah had been, Judah, which basically we're just calling them Israel now. Judah had been in exile in Babylon for about 70 years. Then uh, they got to come back. And you might remember last week, Tyler preached on Haggai, and he talked about how the exiles who had returned were more concerned with building panels on their houses than they were building the temple for the Lord. But by the time of Malachi, the temple had been rebuilt. And in those days, Babylon was no longer the dominant world power. I know this might sound like, what is he talking about? But I promise it it matters a little bit. In those days, Persia was the dominant world power. So Israel had been exiles in Babylon. Persia defeated Babylon and let Israel return to their home. And this is where we find the people in Malachi. But even though they'd gotten to uh, go back home and rebuild things, um, it was still really hard. There was a lot of skirmishes with Samaria. Uh, There were plagues. There was drought. There was a lot of economic crisis. And Israel was ruled by a Persian governor, so they were uh, under the thumb of Persia, and they were just a blip on the screen, so things were hard. And remember, all the prophets, they all have a message of judgment and a message of hope. That's the one thing that is consistent among all prophets, major and minor. There's judgment and there's hope. And as the Israelites looked back on the prophets, they saw that the coming judgment had come because they were conquered and exiled, and now they're on the other side of it, and they're looking for the hope of restoration. The Lord had promised to give his people hearts of obedience and to surround them with his presence. He had promised a coming messianic king who would bring peace and justice. But what we see after the exile is that God's people are just as corrupt as they ever were. So here in Malachi, The people of Israel have long since returned from exile. They've rebuilt the temple, and they're wondering, why haven't all those promises come true? They're wondering, is God real? Is God good? And is God going to do anything? And through the prophet Malachi, God engages all of these concerns, and that's what we're going to look at today. Malachi 
is unique among all the prophets because it actually is a conversation between God and his people. Sometimes he calls them Jacob, sometimes he calls them Israel, but it's the Israelites. And uh, Malachi is basically six conversations or disputes, and we're going to look at all six just briefly. So the first dispute takes place right away in verse two, and the very first thing that the Lord says is, I have loved you. So no matter what comes afterward, we have to remember that it's all grounded in this truth that the Lord says, I have loved you. And in English, uh, this sounds like past tense, but in Hebrew, it it actually uh, has more of a feeling of something that started in the past, but it's still happening. So when we read it, it sounds like I have loved you, Maybe not so much anymore, but one translator actually translates it, I loved you, I do love you, I will love you. So let that frame Malachi for you, and let that frame all of Scripture for you. So if we read verses 2 and 3, this is the beginning of the first dispute. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So the Israelites look around them and they see corruption and they see trouble and they say, how have you loved us? It sure doesn't seem like you love us. But the Lord responds by pointing out to them the difference between Jacob and Esau. Now, if you go back to that very first Minor Prophet sermon when we talked about Obadiah, I know you remember every word of it. So we talked about how Jacob and Esau were brothers, and Jacob's descendants became the nation of Israel. Esau's descendants became the nation of, does anybody remember? I heard one person say Edom, and you get Cracker Jacks, whoever you are. So Israel and Edom. So What was going on in Obadiah is when the Babylonians came and started attacking Israel, Edom took advantage of that and exploited them, basically. So Obadiah is this big prophecy saying, hey, you messed with my kids and I am going to take care of you. So now this has happened. Edom has fallen. His prophecy came true, and the nation of Edom uh, is no more. But God is basically saying, look, you're no better than Edom. I've not been faithful to you because you were faithful to me. I'm faithful because that is who I am, because I have loved you, and I have chosen you, and I will always love you. The second dispute starts in chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord tells the priest that they have despised his name, but they respond, how have we despised your name? The Lord responds by pointing out that the priests, rather than uh, offering their best animals to God, they offer animals that are blind or lame or sick. And although it's not technically the priests themselves who bring the animals, God holds them responsible because they offer all the sacrifices. They know what's going on and they're okay with it. And the Lord points out, hey, you wouldn't offer that to your governor 
So why are you going to offer these sick animals to me? The third dispute starts in chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord says he no longer accepts the people's offerings, to which they respond, why do you not? And the Lord tells them that they have been unfaithful to his covenant with them. But he also says that the men of Israel have been unfaithful to their marriage covenants. It's become common practice for them to cheat on their wives with foreign women. And in fact, it's become common practice for them to divorce their Israelite wives and marry foreign women. And the Lord doesn't speak against foreign women because he was ethnocentric, because the promise of Israel had always been that they would be a blessing to all nations. But the Lord confronts them because when these men married foreign women, they also took on the worship of these women's false gods. In Nehemiah 13, it says the Israelite men who married foreign women were not even teaching their children Hebrew. So in other words, they're leaving it to their wives to do the raising of their children. And since they don't speak their own language, they're not learning the Torah. They're not hearing about the ways of the Lord. And the Lord is not just calling out the men here. He's calling out the entire culture because this has become so common that the entire nation of Israel is just fine with it. The fourth dispute begins in chapter 2, verse 17. And the Lord says to Israel, you have wearied the Lord with your words. To which Israel replies, how have we wearied him? And then the Lord basically quotes things that they say that insult him and call into question his goodness. And even though these things probably tick the Lord off, his response is where the big hope of Malachi starts. But we're going to come back to that in a moment. The fifth dispute begins in chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord says to Israel, return to me and I will return to you. But Israel replies, how shall we return? And the Lord says, well, how about for starters, don't rob me. And what he's talking about is they're withholding their tithes. And you might know in the Torah, in the commands of God, um, the Israelites were required to give a tenth of their income. That also applies to crops and livestock and things like that. But the Lord's response insinuates that they were not offering their whole tithe for fear of not having enough. Because remember, there's been famine, there's been drought, they're under the thumb of Persia, they're a poor nation. And so people are not giving their best sacrifices and they're withholding their tithes. But the Lord tells them, put me to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. In other words, the Lord is saying, do you not know who your real provider is? Do you think I actually need your grain and your oil and your sheep and your gold? This isn't about what I need. It's about what you need. I am your provider. And I think to some degree, we can all relate to this. Have you ever felt reluctant to be generous because things were scarce. Do you remember April of last year when we were hoarding toilet paper? 
have you ever failed to be generous because things are scarce? Have you ever been afraid that if you give up something, you might need it down the road? The Lord's challenge here is, he's like, I dare you, give. Give to the point that it feels foolish and see if I don't provide for you. See if I don't meet your needs. The sixth and final dispute comes in chapter 3, verse 13. And the Lord says that Israel has spoken against him. And of course they reply, how have we spoken against you? And the Lord replies that they have said that it is vain to serve God. And that evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They're basically saying, it doesn't seem like serving you does any good. So what's the point? But this time, instead of responding to what they've said, the Lord tells a story. He tells a story about having a book of remembrance before him that's going to have all the names of the faithful. And in the great day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment on all mankind, the book of remembrance will have the names of those people and they will be blessed and treated as obedient children. And the Lord emphasizes that although the Israelites look around and it seems that evildoers prosper on the day of the Lord, it will be obvious to all that those who are faithful to God are not only spared, but they are blessed. And it picks back up on the hope of the fourth dispute. So the, the hope of the fourth dispute is what I want to focus on for the rest of our time. So we're going to look at that fourth dispute, which starts at chapter 2, verse 17. And this is what it says. The Lord says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, obviously, the way it's set up, the things they're saying are not good. I'm not going to say good things about them. But I'm also not going to blast them. And here's why. I never want to assume because you're at church or because you're listening to church online that you believe any of scripture or you even believe that God exists. And I also never want to assume that because you're a Christian and that you're part of the church that you don't wrestle with your faith. Because of Christ, we are Israel now. And Israel means he wrestles with God. So the reality is that is who we are. And I know that in this room, many are wrestling with faith. And so rather than just tearing apart the Israelites for saying what they say, I want to really look at them and what they're saying. Because at the heart of it, all human beings, whether they're conscious of it or not, are asking three questions. And these three questions are significant for us, and we're going to see them reflected in what Israel says. All human beings are asking three questions. Is God real? Is God good? And is God going to do anything? And in my experience, most people I encounter aren't actually struggling with the first question, even if they think they are. 
What they struggle with is really the second and the third. Is God good? And underneath that is, how can God be good if there's so much evil and suffering and injustice in the world? And attached to that is, well, if he is good, why doesn't he do something? And the things that Israel said about God are the things people are still wrestling with today. The first thing they said is, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. And they aren't actually saying that the Lord delights in evil, but they're saying what it seems like. Is God really good if people don't seek him and seem to do better than those who do? Even the psalmist wrestled with this in Psalm 73. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as other are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. This is what the psalmist said. And of course, if we could get a glimpse of what is really happening with the evil and the arrogant people um, who seem to have easy lives, we'd see that they aren't as great as they look. But these questions aren't based on what's true. They're based on how things seem. And to Israel, it seemed like the evil continued to prosper and that God was not keeping his word to them. So they asked their next question, where is this God of justice? And this is really another way of asking, is God going to do anything? Asking where's the God of justice is an offensive question because they're insinuating that God isn't doing anything at all. And if you were uh, seeing this conversation play out when they ask, where's the God of justice? You would have been like, oh, like it was a rap battle or something. Like this was an insult to God. But the Lord responds uh, not by like having mad flow and spitting game and cutting them down and stuff like that. He responds by actually telling them what he is doing. And this is where it gets exciting. Look at the Lord's response in chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what is the God of justice doing? He is sending a messenger. In fact, if you look closely, it says he's sending two. One is a messenger who will prepare the way before me, before the Lord. And the other is the messenger of the covenant. So <clears throat> skipping ahead about 430 years, we know from the New Testament that the Lord did send a messenger to prepare the way just like he said. This is what it says at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So what's interesting is this isn't just a quote from Isaiah, even though that's what Mark says. It's a combination of a quote from Isaiah and a quote from Malachi 3.1, the same verse that we just read that talks about a messenger coming to prepare the way. Now, 
I want you to remember that Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament. The book of Malachi consists of these six disputes that we looked at, except for the very last three verses in the book. And many biblical scholars see those three verses as an appendix. And it seems to sort of sum up the book of Malachi, but it actually seems to sum up all of the Old Testament so that it is a fitting book to put at the very end of the Old Testament. First, Malachi calls Israel to remember the Torah, which is the law that God gave through Moses. And then he ends with a long sentence that starts this way. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This Elijah that he mentions is the same as the messenger who will prepare the way. And that is the last word of prophecy that any of these people heard from God for over 400 years. That period between the Old Testament and the New Testament is often called the 400 years of silence because there was no prophecy. The last thing they heard was, behold, I send you Elijah. So it makes sense that Mark who was probably the first gospel writer, would pick up where the prophecy left off. So you've been waiting for Elijah, for the messenger who will prepare the way? Well, here he is. And who is it? It's none other than John the Baptist. That's who Mark is setting up when he quotes Malachi 3.1. And if there's any doubt about it, in Matthew 11, Jesus himself says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John... And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So the first messenger is John the Baptist. And now let's look back at Malachi 3 and see who the second messenger might be. Again, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And that's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we should expect after John the Baptist to see the Lord suddenly come to his temple. But before we see if that happens, I just want to point out that it's an odd thing for the Lord to say in Malachi to the Israelites. Because we've already noted that during Malachi's day, they've already rebuilt the temple. And throughout the Old Testament, the temple represented the presence of the Lord among his people. That was the dwelling place of the Lord. So why does the Lord say that he'll suddenly come to his temple? You may remember last week that Tyler talked about how uh, this new rebuilt temple after the exile was not quite as awesome as the old temple had been, the one that got destroyed. And uh, he talked about that weird scene in Ezra 3 where the temple's being rebuilt and all the young people are stoked and they're like, woohoo, we got a temple again. But all the old people who remembered the, the, the old like awesome temple are crying. Like it's a weird scene. But here's the thing. It wasn't just the size or the grandeur that was lacking with this new temple. And way back in Exodus 40, Moses finished building a tabernacle to the specifications that the Lord had given. 
And it was basically an elaborate tent because they were still moving around in the wilderness at that point, so it had to be mobile. And when Moses had finished the work on the tabernacle, this is what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then generations later, when Israel was well established in the promised land, King Solomon built a temple as a permanent dwelling for the Lord so that they didn't have to use the the tabernacle anymore. And this is the big fancy temple that the old dudes in Ezra were really bummed about. In 2 Chronicles 7, King Solomon dedicated the new temple and it says, as soon as Solomon had finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But when the exiles returned and they rebuilt the temple, it doesn't say anything about the glory of the Lord filling it. All it says is that they celebrated. But they had to know that something was missing. They have heard the stories of the cloud and the presence of God and the fire, and they had to know that something was missing. They'd heard all the prophecies of what it was supposed to be like after exile, but where's the messianic king? And where's the peace? Where are the new hearts? Where's the glory of the Lord? As I think about this, I can't help but picture Nacho Libro saying, don't you want a little taste of the glory? See what it tastes like? (laughs) There might only be four people in the room who know what I'm talking about, but thank you. But anyway, they're missing the glory. So uh, quick aside to tell you a stupid story. A few weeks ago, I went to have some keys made for my new dadmobile, which is a minivan. And uh, the last time I had keys made, it was for my 96 GMC pickup truck, and it was probably like eight years ago. And I think for five bucks, you could get like 80 keys or something like that, so that I can just give one to everybody. Um, so I went to Ace expecting to drop like 10 bucks, and first I had them copy like a door key And it was like three bucks, but for an extra buck, you could get a design, and they had Batman. So I'm like, well, of course I'm going to pay the big bucks and spring for the Batman key. So $4 for that. And then I hand them my minivan key, and she's like, it's going to be like $85. I was like, what? So I learned something that day that many of you probably already know. Any vehicle that's been made in this century, the engine key has a chip in it. And if you don't have that chip, the engine won't start. You can make a copy of your engine key, but without the chip, it's not going to do anything. The Israelites had made a copy of the former temple, but there was no chip inside. The glory of the Lord never filled it, so their best attempt at making things work produced nothing but corruption and injustice. But in Malachi 3, the Lord points forward to the day that he will suddenly come to the temple. So back to the New Testament. John the Baptist came as the prophesied messenger to prepare the way before the Lord. So if you've been an Israelite hanging on to Malachi three your whole life and the messenger comes, the next thing you would expect is that the Lord will come and fill the temple. But instead, who comes? Jesus comes. And so that tells us Jesus is the Lord. 
Jesus is the Lord. The doctrine of the Trinity is never like laid out as clearly as would be convenient for us, but if the messenger is preparing the way for the Lord, and then when he comes, it's Jesus, Jesus is God. And remember, after his resurrection, Jesus was talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus, and the gospel writer Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was always about Jesus. The law and the prophets were always pointing toward Jesus. So in Mark 11, at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they give him a kingly procession. Why? Because this is the messianic king they have been waiting for. And where is he heading? He's heading to the temple. So here he is. He's the messenger, the messenger of the covenant. The Lord is coming suddenly to his temple. And when Jesus goes to the temple, what happens? Well, let's read. Mark eleven eleven says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Nothing happened. So maybe the people who had laid down their coats and their branches were asking, is God good? Is God going to do anything? Because it didn't seem like it. And maybe it doesn't seem like it to you this morning. But the temple that the Lord suddenly came to was not a building in Jerusalem. Because that was a copy of a minivan key with no chip. In John 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is the temple. And this is good, good news, because the whole story of the prophets was this. We desperately need the presence of God, but we can't do the things necessary to get there. We want to keep his commands, but we only mess them up. We want to start the engine, but there's no chip in the key. So at best, we are turning the key endlessly, hoping for a different result. But the solution to our problem is not obedience because we've already blown that. The solution is the Lord coming to his temple. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that true worshipers will worship the Father and the Spirit and in truth, not on this mountain or that mountain, not in this temple or that temple. See, if we have faith in Jesus, our hearts become the temple of the Lord. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that we, the church, are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And he says, we... We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So it seems like we're just a bunch of people in a gym with some carpet that we rolled out and we're singing songs to someone we've never seen and we're praying to a God that none of us have ever seen or heard. 
but we are the dwelling place of God and things are not what they seem. I hope that as you go about your week, you are able to sense God's nearness, his presence that we have because of the Holy Spirit. I hope you're able to sense that where you go, the Spirit of the Lord goes with you. And I hope that you're able to have a sense of wonder when you hear a kid laugh or when you taste really fresh salsa or when it's really hot but you're sitting in the shade and the breeze comes and cools you off or when you see that somehow your peace lily survived even though you've been a horrible gardener. I hope you have a sense of God's wonder because the goodness of God isn't just for the afterlife. But Jesus told his disciples that in this world, you will have trouble. And in those times, it may seem like God is not speaking, that God is not moving, and you may wonder if he even cares. But Malachi gives us truth that's more real than how things may seem. God is doing something, and the day of the Lord is coming. So in the meantime, Malachi encourages us to remember God's word and to look with anticipation to the final fulfillment of all the prophecies. And it's Jesus. Jesus has become for us the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus has become for us the perfect high priest who is able to offer the sacrifice. Jesus is the king that we have been waiting for Jesus is the giver of new hearts. Jesus is our righteousness when we have none. Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets so that we can be with him in the presence of God. And just like we've sung and just like we've heard in Psalm 103, Jesus is making all things new. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your written word. Thank you that we have access to it. Thank you that we live in a country where we can gather as your church, as the dwelling place of God, and sing in response to your word. And we can read your word out loud, and we can wrestle with our faith and remind one another of how great you are without fear of persecution. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who don't have the freedom that we have. Lord, many of us are suffering and those of us who aren't see it all around us. Remind us, Lord, of your faithfulness. Thank you that your promises are true. Thank you that you are real, that you are good and that you are doing something. Give us hope until the great day of the Lord when we see the consummation of the kingdom of God with King Jesus on the throne. We pray all these things in his name, amen.